For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Ah, it's good to be back. I took a week off. I've been at the shows in London and Milan. It was really busy. And also on this trip, I recorded 11 new podcasts. I can't wait to share them with you, starting with this one. It's all about Extinction Rebellion. Have you heard of them? They are the climate action group that was formed in the UK about a year ago on the premise that trying to be a bit more sustainable is not going to help us solve the climate crisis. They say that tinkering around the edges of the system, but essentially carrying on with business as usual, will do nothing to save us from climate breakdown. So they are calling on governments to declare a climate and ecological emergency to act now to halt biodiversity loss and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. How are they doing it? Direct action. Civil disobedience. Basically, they're getting arrested. You're going to meet three of the movement's leaders, Claire Farrell, Will Skeeping and Sarah Arnold. Will and Claire are co-editors of the new Extinction Rebellion handbook, This Is Not a Drill, which was recently published by Penguin, and we'll share a link if you want to get hold of one. Now, interestingly, Claire and Sarah both come from fashion backgrounds. Claire Farrell is a former fashion designer, and Sarah is the woman behind the fashion rental business, Hire Studio. If you follow me on Instagram, you might know that I hired my London Fashion Week wardrobe from Sarah last season. But so much has changed for Sarah since then, as you will hear. This season, she was leading the protests at London Fashion Week. And Extinction Rebellion is calling for it to end. They're urging people to boycott fashion and have little sympathy for an industry that they say is broken and a major contributor to the climate crisis. They staged a bunch of protests during the week, including swarming outside the Victoria Beckham show. They blockaded the opening of the trade show, actually, as well, at 180 The Strand. And that was controversial because that's also where the emerging sustainable designers were showcasing. Five extinction rebels donned white dresses with bleeding hearts. The blood was actually beetroot to dye and glued themselves to the entrance. Then, on the final day of the shows, an even bigger protest. Extinction Rebellion staged a funeral. They called it R.I.P. London Fashion Week. Now, I went along and I recorded some vox pops with protesters on the ground. I asked them why they were there and why they joined the rebellion. And you're going to hear that before we dive into the main interviews. The first person you will hear from, briefly, is the fashion journalist, Belle Jacobs. There's also an excerpt from a speech that was given on the ground by Safia Mini, and she was our guest back in episode 54, if you want to go back and listen to Safia. But before we start, a quick word on the context for all of this. 
As you will be aware, the UN Climate Action Summit has just wrapped in New York. And that's why Greta Thunberg asked world leaders how dare they think only of money and what she called the fairy tales of eternal economic growth while the world stands on the brink of ecological disaster. Meanwhile, climate strike. An estimated 7 million people joined the global protests recently in the streets. So what do you think about all of this? Do we need complete system change? And if so... What will it take to achieve it and what will it look like? As usual, I love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs Press. And please do share this episode as much as you can. It was a pretty epic one to make and I'm proud of it. Here we go. Just one, two, three. One, two, three. Trafalgar Square at what? Uh, we're here at the start of the RIP London Fashion Week funeral march to put the toxic system of fashion consumption to mourn those who have already lost their lives to climate change and those who will lose their lives to climate change, to the climate emergency. It's a really emotional time. You've been a fashion journalist for many years, you and I know each other well. What has made you think that you need to step up and join this movement? It became really clear. I mean, when I was working as a mainstream fashion journalist, um, the excess was already disturbing. So it was just sort of the sheer amount of press releases and products being produced was getting pretty insane. I think when Rana Plaza fell, it was, for me, I could no longer write about the brands that were, you know, some of the labels were littered amongst bodies. I couldn't be in that position. And joining Extinction Rebellion, understanding the extent of the climate emergency, being a parent, knowing how urgent the situation is, every day you open the newspaper, there is another new story to reinforce how urgent this all is. They make a good point. I'm thinking right now. I haven't made up my mind, but it's causing me to think. I'm Tomea, also known as Tolly Dolly Posh on the internet, and I'm 19. I grew up wanting to be a fashion designer, and that was always my passion. I still love fashion and the creative side of it. You know, give me a studio and a load of secondhand fabrics and all. I'd love that. But to me, I've reached a point of like an emergency mindset. We're in the climate emergency. It's a crisis. People are dying because of it and they will continue to do so. And the fashion industry is so impactful and influential. And so it just doesn't sit right with me anymore how it is continuing to be. And I feel definitely feel anger. And yeah, I do feel emotional sometimes. You know, I've had like a meeting with my MP and I've cried in front of them. And I've you know, I've sat in front of policemen and watched my friend get arrested and I've cried. And I've had these big moments where I've been like, wow, like we're really doing this. My name's Rosalind. I'm a student from London and I'm here because I just believe that the whole system of fashion seasons is just an extremely unsustainable model and we actually need to take pretty urgent, immediate action rather than persisting with the model as it is. The procession just stopped halfway down the Strand not without irony, outside Topshop and Safia Mini pulled up wearing a widow's weeds and a black veil. 
a black lace veil. She then delivered a rousing address to the crowd. Fashion has gone too far, she said. It's time for a different system. We've asked citizens, please buy ethical, buy fair trade. It's not worked at the speed it needs to work. We need to slow down the fashion system. The drum that I beat in the parade gives us the sense of the Earth's heart. The Earth's heart is dying, and with it, humanity. A few days before the funeral, I interviewed Extinction Rebellion's Claire Farrell, Will Skeeping and Sarah Arnold at Will's London home. I want to start by reading a quote from the new Extinction Rebellion handbook, This Is Not A Drill. The future will not look like the present. We know that now. Governments have failed us. We have to work together. To survive, it's going to take everything we've got and everyone we know. Claire, let's start with the basics. What is Extinction Rebellion and what is its purpose? Extinction Rebellion is a non-violent direct action movement focused on normalising civil disobedience and uniting people to call for structural political change. I'm just going to pick you up on that in case listeners don't understand the definition of civil disobedience. Yeah, so for us it has meant various different types of tactics. It's very low-level, non-violent, peaceful law-breaking. So you might find Extinction Rebellion activists sitting in a road. You might find them blocking the entrance to a building. You might find them... Swarming? Yeah, or you might find them spray painting on buildings, often with chalk spray that washes off quite easily. So, uh, yeah, it's been lots of different tactics and I think we're probably going to see an expansion into more variety of different non-violent tactics. Probably could include hunger striking, could include people doing debt refusals in the future, I would imagine. You've actually been a hunger striker. Yeah, so last summer I didn't eat for two weeks to try and protest at the British Labour Party about the expansion of Heathrow Airport. Okay, um... On October the 7th, what you're calling the Worldwide Rebellion is coming up. You're asking people to do what and why. On the 7th of October, thousands of people are going to come from all across the UK to London and similarly in other capital cities and major cities around the world. They will block roads and uh, peacefully disrupt business as usual. Well, I just want to bring you in around Worldwide When I think of Extinction Rebellion, I think of Britain. I live in Sydney. There has been some action in Brisbane, but it's not been a huge thing in Australia yet. How far off are you from being a global rebellion? Well, we started out just under a year ago, and we're now in 63 countries. We have hundreds of thousands of people joining us in this movement. And it's all happened through a kind of positive community building at absolute grassroots level. What's really vital is that we understand that the whole world is deeply connected all of us together on this planet, sort of Buckminster Fuller, spaceship Earth kind of feels. But the you whole, what? Do you know about Buckminster Fuller? No. Nah. It's a guy, he wrote a really good book back in the 60s and he said, uh, we've got to stop thinking about the whole world being lots of little individual nations and we have to start thinking of ourselves all as being passengers on a gigantic spaceship, which is our planet. And it's just a really nice way of thinking about it. And he talks about pirates and people extracting things from it and raiding it. But actually, we've all got to sort of get together. And I know that sounds really hippie. The guy was an architect and a scientist, but he really connected with those people back in the 60s because... I mean, it makes so much sense. Anyway, we're in some ways thinking the same way. We're trying to go, right, this is a globalised movement. We're trying to get everyone together because this is a global problem. And if a country isn't joining us on this, then they're going to be a pirate and in the way. 
Roger Hallam, who's one of the founders, said, obviously, we need lots of people. But then he said, but maybe we only need 50,000 people. Talk to us about the numbers. I mean, a worldwide rebellion would be nice if every single person joined. But you actually only need a certain segment of the population to push this forwards, right? Roger's done loads of really interesting work where he's been looking at previous movements in the past. Who And we've got the privilege of being able to read books about what previous movements did. They didn't. And it's like amazing that all those people have done incredible things and made great change that has influenced and made our lives what they are today. I think it's really important to realise that the numbers that he's discussed and looked at, the three and a half to five percent, you know, it doesn't feel like a lot of people. And it certainly doesn't mean everyone out in the streets. It doesn't mean everyone getting arrested. And it doesn't mean everyone going to prison. It just means like a big groundswell of activity and affirmative, positive attitudes towards what we're doing and supporting us. The important thing here is that what we're trying to do, unlike previous movements, is not just make small differences to society we're trying to begin to shift the paradigm completely and that means we will need probably more people but we've never had a problem like this before will can you fill us in on what happened in april when more than a thousand people were arrested in london in april was our kind of first really serious major rebellion it's the last one we've done we're heading towards october the 7th which is our next mega one which we need everyone to come out for we start extinction rebellion first did its protests uh, outside of parliament and then graduated to blocking bridges all across the capital there were some other protests outside buckingham palace during that time and then in april we came out on mass with all of our grassroots movement from all across the uk and in many places across the world heading towards capital cities to protest in a big way and we took over five sites around the capital in sort of key locations designed to create economic disruption in order that we drive our message home and get our demands met by the government. I mean, um, Marblach, Parliament Square, the Stock Exchange. Uh, more Piccadilly Circus, Waterloo Bridge. Some we'd already blocked previously, others were new. But again, it's about like trying to do something better than what's there at the moment. And you've got a street full of shopping busy shoppers consuming wildly and we turned it into a completely free festival we stuck an enormous pink boat in the middle of oxford street put a skateboard ramp on a bridge you know it's just all about trying to make things a bit more genuinely culturally exciting rather than kind of consumable culture that reminds me of a quote that i highlighted from the book which is from a chapter written by roger hallam and it is Last but not least, it has to be fun. If we can't dance at it, it isn't a real revolution. The artistic communities need to be on board. It's a festival. We're going to show the media that we're not sitting around waiting to die any longer. We're going to have a party. Exactly. But I'd say one thing that differs between our festival and the festivals like Burning Man and all those kind of nightmares is that we're not trying to sell tickets. We're not trying to sell booze. We're encouraging people not to drink or consume drugs during our protests. The whole thing is focused very much on a joyful celebration of change. And that means everyone has to be in their right minds to get to that better space. So yeah, it's really fun. But let's not get this mistaken, some sort of euphoric piss up. This is like a big, important event. But it strikes me that there is this inherent tension between this idea of, you know, make it look Instagrammable, get everyone to come and feel like they're part of this movement in a way that, you know, feels good. But also the messaging is extremely full-on serious and frightening how do you balance that i think it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster going through the process of getting your head around this crisis is an emotional roller coaster too and i guess we're turning that into an experience in some ways you start out frequently in a kind of place of denial you move towards one of anger you can move towards one of complete sadness of like what's the point of everything and then the great thing about 
what we've been building here, I hope, and what I've found most powerful is being sort of held by your friends and colleagues in this movement and that you are all in this together, all facing the same direction head on into this mad time. And you can discuss the climate crisis and the ecological crisis and what's happening openly and freely without anyone thinking you're weird or having to get over sort of emotional hurdles. We've all kind of got through that grief stage or we're kind of beginning to make those steps. And I guess what we're trying to do is help people through that process. And it's going to come in a big way. This is going to be the big next problem for the world, for young people, this overwhelming climate-based depression and grieving. Mm. Like schools, we all need to get our heads around this soon. Claire, could you perhaps give us an overview of just what's happening with the climate? Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the world's most respected voice most rigorous group of scientists that have ever put any work together in human history have been raising the alarm for some time. The paper that came out last year from their side was recommendation to try much, much harder to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming rather than allowing the two degrees top end of the Paris Agreement because the difference in that half a degree in average warming is so huge. The IPBES, which is a bit like the IPCC, reported earlier this year that a million species are at risk of extinction at the moment. Uh, We are in an extinction event. The world has like suffered or experienced five of these before. The result is usually about 97% of all life on the planet gets wiped out in those events. We've definitely created it. We're definitely not fixing it. There are many, many feedback mechanisms built into the system and they're positively reinforcing. What that means is as they unfold, they make the warming faster and the faster the warming goes, it increases that mechanism. And so it's a self-perpetuating sort of vicious circle. There's tons and tons of feedback mechanisms there. People don't really know how to model them or predict them. Things like if the ice caps melt. Yeah, the simplest thing is to describe like the loss of the albedo effect. The albedo effect is like when the light and the energy comes from the sun, it hits the white polar regions of the planet, majority of that energy gets bounced back out into space. So as we lose the white surface, we gain dark water and that's like basic physics. The dark water absorbs the heat, the dark land absorbs the heat, so it'll get faster and faster. We're losing Arctic ice at like a incredibly fast rate that region's warming about three or four times as fast as the rest of the planet it's very very worrying but there are tons and tons of other mechanisms that are built into the system that can continue to make this get worse much faster and we know that the global food system is so complex and and we rely on these sort of major breadbaskets of the world there's not many of these large regions in the center of continents where we grow the majority of grain crops civilization civilized life is built on the back of being able to grow grains at scale and store them and so we know that if we ex- see extreme weather in one region and another at the same time you might have one place where there's massive flooding that destroys the crops at the beginning of the season you might have another place where there's massive droughts that destroys crops midway through the season if we have a massive reduction in crop yield in two of those places at the same time we have a major major food crisis the world over that could see people struggling to feed themselves in uh, Europe even which is like something that I think most people aren't expecting here We're recording this during London Fashion Week and there have been protests at the Strand 
which is a Fashion Week headquarters and outside the show. Sarah, I was at Victoria Beckham's show yesterday, which was held at the Foreign and Commonwealth office in Whitehall. You were there too, but you didn't have a ticket. No, I was there to um, highlight the environmental footprint of the fashion industry. I mean, I know that obviously a lot of that comes from fast fashion, but the culture of excess really comes from the top. And what you have at London Fashion Week and other fashion weeks is kind of cultural hubs. It's seen as culture, but we have to see that within the emergency situation we're in, this kind of culture is being used to distract us from the emergency. You gave a speech. I wonder if you might be able to share some of that. I mean, it was kind of a rallying call you talked about obviously stop trashing the planet, but also use what we've already got. Can you share with us some of those words? We will engage in a boycott of the fashion industry and its ecocidal, unethical system of pointless production. We will take joy in making do with what we collectively already have and learn to share, repair, rewear and relove. We challenge ourselves to radically change our relationship with clothes. I mean, that is just eminently reasonable. And I think that any regular listeners of this podcast will know that that's the sort of thing we champion in general. Reuse, rewear, looking after what we already have and not being profligately wasteful. However, fashion equals ecocide. Well, I mean, it's a huge amount of carbon emissions. I mean, it's debatable how much it is. I think that the numbers range from about 7 to 10%. We often say if fashion were a country, it's emissions would be equivalent to those of Russia. Exactly, yes. And more than maritime shipping and international flights combined. It's big. But then it's not just that. There's natural fibres. Natural fibres have to be grown. So where are they grown? That's taking up land. It's using water. We have the Aral Sea that's basically been completely irrigated to grow cotton. Um, Disappeared, basically. Yeah. It's like a sandy desert. Yeah, Complete environmental crisis. And then, you know, on the other side, you've got the synthetic fibres, which are coming from oil. And we're in a situation now where we need to be regenerating nature as much as possible. We can't afford to continue growing crops for clothes. We need to grow food. And the way things are going, we're going to struggle to do that. Claire, you you yourself showed at London Fashion Week during Aesthetica, which Ursula de Castro, who's been on this podcast, was one of the co-founders of, and she's also part of Fashion Revolution. Put yourself in the shoes of the young designers who are part of the Positive Fashion Exhibition right now at the Strand. One of them told me that he was in tears when he got there and the protests were there. And he said, but I'm using reclaimed materials. My work is my change. What I'm doing is my own part of trying to create the change in the industry that I want to radically shift. What would you say to him? That it's very nice to make good work, but we need something much bigger than that. And what I said recently when I was talking to somebody from Common Objective who brought a lot of the criticisms that we've had from the younger sort of audience, I guess, of sustainable designers, um, it's too late for sustainability to be helpful to us right now like yes we need to be making things in different ways in the future and that will go on but what I would say to that person is I'm really sorry I'm really really sorry that you're this age you're at this stage in your career at this moment in time because it's heartbreaking and it would be great if we could all carry on and people could make 
sustainable collections and be listened to and the industry would change and that would actually result in something meaningful but it's just not a great time to be in the process of production right now and if the fashion industry were to convene the kind of conversation that we've been calling for them to have I think it should be led by people like him and I think the old guard could sit down and they could listen to the young people and take them seriously for the work that they're doing which from my experience in fashion week you know sustainability has always been like a bolt-on to business as usual oh, look at those people over there they're cute aren't they doing a nice thing hasn't it got a nice story behind it and it's tiny compared to the power and the influence and the production capacity of all of the big players so it's you know in this context it's just not enough and I think those people should be basically put in charge of like starting the conversation about where it should go properly empowered not just like oh we'll get you something in vogue and then we'll propel you to a bit of a PR story and help you set your business up and then and then drop you like you know because that's that is what happens to young designers isn't it in London Fashion Week they sort of get the press and they get built up and then they get sort of let go of and go okay off you go now and you're probably going to crash and burn unless you get bought out by a big corporate and that's the reality like it's difficult and I've you know been through the aesthetica thing with with Ursula she was like excellent to all of us encouraging but where were we we were in this like downstairs back room quite hard to find put in a sort of separate thing made you know it the sustainable fashion thing is is really problematic what would you say to me as the sustainability editor of Vogue I'm your problem writ large at this table. (laughs) I mean, I just think that, you know, one thing that's interesting about sustainability is that often it begins with like efficiency. And I've been talking recently, raising this paradox. In the 19th century, there was an economist, this thing called Jevons Paradox, a guy who recognised that when we made an efficiency saving in the technology that burnt coal, we used more coal, not less. And this is a paradox that we can see it continues. Every time we make an, a saving, we use that saving to make can do more. more now. And that's a problem, right? And if we can't even recognise that we're facing these kinds of fundamental problems with the way that we think and organise and the way that we collectively behave, then we're not going to fix things with a bit of sustainability. So I'm not convinced that the conversations around sustainability are always helpful. I think sometimes they can be something that makes people sort of believe that they're doing something good, but it's still attached to a growth-based economy. There's a line in the, this is not a drill book that I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like, most people when you ask them about the climate crisis will say, well, I'd rather have a bit of rubbish weather than give up meat or flying. Is fashion one of those things that we are basically ignoring the truth of because... It's the system, but also because we enjoy it. I mean, I love fashion. Fashion. I'm here at Fashion Week. Knowing that the climate crisis is unfolding around me, I flew to Fashion Week and I went to the Victoria Beckham show and watched it. Yeah, I mean, we all have to kind of learn to let go. We're in a different paradigm now. We're in an emergency. And I've had to go through that process of letting go myself. You know, when the 1.5 degree IPCC report came out, I was working for a brand as well as having my own business and so I was complicit in the production of new clothes and I couldn't bear the thought of me being complicit in that given that it was an emergency and so I walked out and I'm not saying that everybody 
has to do that. I understand that that's a really difficult thing for some people to do, and but we all have to question it. Just a couple of things before I bounce this back to Claire, but what are you wearing? Because on the phone the other day, you and I friends, we met through your high up business, higher studio. In fact, I rented my wardrobe for London Fashion Week last season from you. And we were having a chat on the phone and you said, actually, I've started to not even want to dress in the way that I used to dress because it seems to be sending the wrong message. Hello, what are you wearing today? (laughs) I'm wearing my mum's isumiyaki dress. It's a full on fashion look and you are a full on fashion looking person. Yeah. I mean, the clothes I have are what I have, so I can't get rid of them. But I question that every day. When I put my lipstick on this morning, I questioned whether I should do that. And there's no kind of right or wrong and exact way of doing this. But we do really need to question the repercussions of what we do. And I do have certain things in my wardrobe now that I would feel uncomfortable wearing, given that it's an emergency. I felt okay in this because it's just really easy to wear and that's the great thing about isimiyaki stuff (laughs) but then I think that actually does bring to the fore something very human that it's very you can want to live your values and I think that many of us including me really do want to do that you can want to be the change but change is difficult and also shedding all the things that we hold dear is extremely difficult and I'm not sure I want to do that actually I like to be dressed up all to the nines and wear extravagant things Claire you've got green and orange hair yeah, I have. But I mean, I guess <laughs> but the point is our visual identity is something that we, it's intrinsic. It does. If we could uncouple it from commerce, I think that fashion has a role to play. And there's a bit of yeah. me that feels a bit freaked out by the doomy gloominess of the messaging around Extinction Rebellion. I'm not saying that fashion should be over. Quite the opposite. Fashion's got a role to play within this, but we re- need to reconnect with what fashion actually is. And that's a mode of communication. So... I think, yes, we need all the creativity, but let's redirect it into a way that manifests the situation that we're in instead of this manifestation of denial. Claire, you actually worked in commercial fashion. You studied fashion. You worked in high street fashion. But I heard that you wrote your dissertation on the negative impacts of the industry. Is that right? Yeah, in 2004 when no one was thinking about that I wrote a dissertation about that my tutors told me it was like really boring and no one cared where were you studying Middlesex they said if you can't see that something's organic from the catwalk which you won't be able to nobody's ever going to give a shit about that so I put up loads of posters around my department about like how many tens of thousands of people were being poisoned to death by the cotton industry to bring attention to mulesing, the practice where they slice the excess skin off the live merino sheep, various other things that I sort of wanted to bring to the attention of my colleagues, I guess. And looking back, I didn't really realise that that was like a little activist <laughs> action that I did in, in my own department. But yeah, I, I've got a very big interest in science and chemistry, so I wrote about the sort of technical impacts of of textiles and different fibre types and where they come from and where they go and tried to build myself like a sort of toolkit in my head, I suppose, for like making decisions about what I would and wouldn't use. But then you worked in high street fashion, so you didn't have those choices. Yeah, and then I went to work for the bad people and I thought... when you said that? I thought it was a label. I was like, what's that one? Sounds good. And I and I went to work with suppliers and I wanted to understand the high street fashion industry because there weren't brands to go and work for if you wanted to work on ethics. I mean, you could maybe go and work for Komodo or People Tree and they didn't look like they do now. 
they were quite sort of like early in their development and the whole sector had a sort of a feel of hemp and unbleached cotton and basics and fair trade stamps and it just wasn't competing with the fashion industry so I thought what I need to do is go and work in the fashion industry and learn about it. How just fast forward how are you as a movement using the tools of fashion to put your point across and I'm thinking for example about the grass-grown coats? Yeah, the grass-grown coats are really super cool. They're made by these artists, Ackroyd and Harvey, uh, who are very beautiful people. And they brought some grass banners to one of our first, I think it was when we closed the bridges in November, and I met them there. And then they, they've continued to make that work. They've made beautiful work based on grass and other, other living plants. So, yeah, look at their work. It's really, really lush. But also, we do this print blocking. And quite early on, everybody was like, looking for a, a way to make money to bring some money into the movement so that we could start to have more funds to work with. And lots of people wanted to make T-shirts because they always want to make T-shirts, don't they? What's the solution to this social problem? Make a T-shirt. And I said, no way are we going to make T-shirts to try and fix this crisis. It's a joke. And lots of people sort of seemed a little bit like I was sort of getting in the way of something, you know. And I, and I did, when it was small scale, I did feel bad about that. But now that we've expanded these sort of woodblock prints and we print on people's existing clothing and you see it on the streets in April, my boyfriend was printing people's clothing outside H&M and Nike and I thought, this is it, it's brilliant, it's worked because it's, it's a way for people to produce their own merch and there's no two pieces the same and people don't buy new stuff and, and, and. I mean, it's just, it's gone really well, so... The first time I saw Extinction Rebellion protesting London Fashion Week, which was in February, you said to me, everyone's wearing black to show that they're in their funeral gear. This time, and we're recording this the day before it happens, there will be a funeral staged on the Strand? Yep, on the Strand. We're starting in Trafalgar Square, walking to 180 The Strand. And it's been done. You've done it already. I mean, I was looking at the footage from the um, cycling protest. The funeral for the unknown cyclist. I mean, funerals are something that Extinction Rebellion does fairly often now. There are certain tactics that we keep using and funerals are one of them. And it's a time for us to get together and process the grief that we all feel. So, I mean, obviously the fashion industry is, you know, we've said it's a big contributor to the situation that we're in. And it will be a time that we can commemorate those who have already lost their lives and the lives that we will continue to lose. But it it is also, you know, we've called it London Fashion Week RIP. And that is because we need to stop business as usual. You know, the UN Secretary General has given us this kind of 2020 deadline. We need to see carbon emissions start to decrease, which we are nowhere near doing that. And The deadline is coming up and if London Fashion Week continues next season, then we are sending a message to the world that it's okay to continue producing clothes into 2021. What sort of reactions have you had from the BFC? And I mean, just a bit of context, five protesters in white dresses with not actual blood, presumably, bleeding hearts (laughs) displayed on the front. Natural dyes, awesome. Natural dyes. Um, protested the opening of the London Fashion Week trade show on Friday and glued themselves to the doors, did they? Or each other? I don't know. There was uh, some glue both, involved. Both, I think. Oh, there was some glue involved, yes. 
I know that you have reached out to and tried to engage with the British Fashion Council. What's their reaction? Um, since last Fashion Week, we've actually had a productive relationship with Caroline Rush and the British Fashion Council. I mean, they have made quite a few steps in the right direction. Obviously, you know, we always say it's not enough because we need total systemic change, but they're in a position where they can make incremental change and that's what they've done. So they now have this positive fashion space. And tomorrow, uh, Belle Jacobs, who's part of our fashion boycott group, will be there doing a talk. So, you know, we are we are making steps forward. Will, can I ask you to share a little bit about the power of the visual in general in Extinction Rebellion, the graphics, for example, but also just in terms of when you look at images of the protests, they look so arresting. <laughs> pun intended uh. <laughs> um i didn't actually mean that <laughs> so good at puns it's because i spent so long in magazines and had to write those Ooh. punny headlines <laughs> but when you see those images i'm thinking in particular of all the activists dressed in red were they on a beach in cornwall or something where were they those guys are really cool they're really fun and i think it's fun death fun de- <laughs> well, look, I mean, listen, let's not get this confused we we may have a very serious message but the whole process of what we do is creating a a vision of something better of a future and a kind of new way of doing things and both transforming the city and ourselves to do something more exciting so yeah the message is dark but when you come down to one of our protests one of our events anything we're doing we'll turn like four lanes of traffic on a bridge into a festival with free food loads of amazing music and it's totally family accessible and the pollution level goes down you know realistically this is just like much better way of doing things but in terms of visually compelling activity yeah we're living in a world that's completely obsessed with the visual you know it's instagram for breakfast snapchat up the wazoo we need to get on that and we need everyone to totally start coming along and sharing pictures and images of how much better it can be and we do also just quickly on the thinking yeah, i just about, want to know about the red guys though who were they the red guys are called the red brigades they're known and again like that's a sort of part of a thing called the invisible circus which i believe is a sort of theater and movement-based company i think they were based in bristol i think it or in anyway they're in england and they've got a sort of interchangeable membership and people come and join them and they pop up in various places and activities and they're this sort of vignette that sort of haunts events and locations and it's something really exciting about that because people frequently want to take their photo and that's brilliant because it helps get us on the front page of the news and that's where we need to be with this story and if that's what it takes then that's really really important but i would say one thing People initially went, oh, it's a bunch of hippies on a bridge. It's not. It's like one of the most slick, clean-cut, beautiful, immaculately presented uh, expressions of protest. This is a all the iconography, all the looks are all carefully coordinated in some ways, but also have a freedom that everyone can bring their own expression to that process. And it just means that there's a kind of clarity of message, but it's one that means there's this precision in that it doesn't have to be all sloppy. It doesn't all have to be curly-whirly writing and all the cliches that come with environmentalism. And there's a really nice chapter in our book, and Claire's played a much bigger role in this than I have, in how this process has come about and the art factory that she helped develop and all the thinking behind it. Claire and I are two of the co-editors of the book, and when we put it together, it started out initially as a kind of, it was meant to have been a manifesto, and then that turned into a kind of really heavyweight tome that was almost kind of just too difficult to get into. And then we all in the last few weeks after the rebellion in April, as it was going so kind of fast and the conversation was moving so quickly, we stripped it back to a really accessible handbook. And the idea is that we make this subject as accessible as possible. We bring in as many of the key themes around climate justice, around action 
around why the science has been not listened to for years and not kind of blaming and shaming but just making this something which people can immediately get their head around our approach but also where we're at in this conversation and we go from quite uplifting pieces to ones by the likes of Jem Bendel who bring a kind of apocalyptic streak to this chapter 11 doom and gloom adapting to the collapse doom and bloom was it Absolutely. I read it as gloom. Yeah, but my brain read it as gloom. There you go. We're all preset for this stuff. But it's like we're trying to drive people to take action. Like we've still got a chance to make changes that are drastic now. And we will manage to, hopefully, many of us, at least in the West, will not have to get the worst effects of this climate change. We've got to balance the inequalities around the world, around how we think about our consumption habits in the West and what that's doing to the majority world, to the people in the global south, to the rest of our biosphere, to all other life on this planet, to feed basically our kind of, I want to say vanity or greed. We're all doing it. We get up in the morning and, you know, live our lives and we're all consuming. You're basically calling for complete system change. I think we're looking at systemic change, how we can change. We're not looking to go, yes, smash the system, yeah, chuck it. We're looking at going, how do we, in the very short time we've got, use the tools available to us to make these changes? And that means bringing the people into the decision-making process. It's not going to be these kind of increasingly mad-looking leaders. What must we do about it and what can we do, Claire? Well, our suggestion is that everybody needs to go into open rebellion against the genocidal governments of the world and eventually build enough of a global movement to be able to turn the curve around and it has to happen very quickly. Is it going to happen? I mean, are people going to get out of their middle-class armchairs and stop on the way to driving their kids to school in their four-wheel drive and think, I better join the rebellion? This is happening. It's already happening. We're cutting through. There's been a great success. There's been an Ipsos Mori poll, which is like one of the big polling companies in the UK. And this ended up on the front page of the Evening Standard, which is one of the British newspapers. And it said that 85% of the country are concerned about climate change. And 55% of those people are at the highest sort of indexing level where they were deeply concerned about climate. So a year ago, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the same kind of figures. But this is really cutting through now. I think it's not just Extinction Rebellion, but Greta Thunberg, David Attenborough. Like the stars are beginning to align towards everyone recognising and waking up to this crisis because no one is going to get out of this. There is no one who gets to escape. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. We're still absolutely screwed when the food runs out. And I think people are beginning to get their head around that. All right, I want to finish on a note of hope. I think we can find hope in each other. And this is really all about building communities. Doing individual actions isn't enough. It's about getting together, supporting each other to make these changes. That's why we're asking everyone to come together, not on their own individual journey. That's great, but like you need to bring that to the mass. You need to come with everything you've got in your skill set, in your enthusiasm, in your fear, in your rage to get together and join us on the streets. That doesn't mean like signing a petition or going on an A to B march. It means getting out in the streets and staying there until we get the change we need for our futures and those of all other life on this planet. Yeah, and I think Greta is quite right when she says that you don't deserve any hope unless you earn it. So that's the position that we're in. And, you know, a recent article that I read trying to offer a critique of Extinction Rebellion described us as pacifists. And there's something here about educating ourselves about what nonviolence is and what it isn't. And this form of nonviolence or civil resistance is not passive it is absolutely powerful and peaceful 
but it is resistance. It is serious. You know, it's not about sitting around and saying like, I just believe in peace and I'm going to stay at home. Like we have to get out there together now. And that's what we're encouraging people to do. And I think when you go to the spaces that get created by Extinction Rebellion protests, when you go to the student uh, strikes, you can find a great sense of like belief in the idea of doing some things quite differently. And what we're asking for isn't even, to my mind, it's not even very radical. Like our tactics seem radical, but what we ultimately want in terms of a structural political change is just a very, very ordinary democratic solution which people the world over understand the value of and which you can see how well it's worked for people in recent years with difficult political topics so it's absolutely not it's not a crazy aim you know and this is the beginning of a kind of paradigm shift so yes when you go out on those bridges when you go and sit down in the road together it is a spiritual moment for for lots of people and it does do something to you and it does make you realize that there is a very slim chance that something might work and that's the best hope we've got in my opinion oh, it's getting hard my parents feel that I'm defending you and tell them all that they are wrong because I love you thank you for listening to wardrobe crisis to learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast you can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.